are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, folks, Justin here with a quick word before we dive in. First off, in this episode, I chat with legendary bassist David Ellison about growing up in the Midwest, the early years of Megadeth, jazz, marching band, the ugly side of touring, and his upcoming projects. Also, if you're listening to this and you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcast, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monsters Madness and Magic, and on Twitter at the official underscore M3. And without further ado, here you go. and ghouls, this is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> So I guess just to jump in there, take us back in time. You're a kid. What would you say you were into? Were you doing a lot of reading? Were you building forts? What's the scoop there? So I grew up on a grain farm. My dad had a heart attack when I was like two years old. So he sold off all the cattle. So the Ellison's through kind of the 20th century. So our farm we've had it since the late 1800s, right? So it's like a centennial farm. So every generation just ended up farming it, you know, wow. until, until, yeah, so it's pretty cool. Except me. Then I ran off to Hollywood. <laughs> I, I, I broke the stride. That's why my older brother ended up taking over the farm, you know, when he graduated. So that was, you know, that's your life when you grow up on a farm. But I mean, you know, it was a grain farm growing up and stuff, right? So most of it was just work around around the farm. But, you know, it was comfortable. I mean, it was, I mean, we worked hard, you know, you work six days a week and you take Sunday off, right? That was the deal, right? Yeah, yeah. So I learned how to drive at age 12 and I was into like climbing stuff. I remember my dad would always build like grain elevator legs and big bins and silos so i was always into climbing kind of being a daredevil i love that tv show emergency remember that it was yeah, uh yeah. it was like it was like the you know <laughs> you know one out of, uh, you know whatever it was engine 51 you know <laughs> so i was yeah. really into that probably like a lot of boys you want to climb stuff and be a fireman or something right and then uh one day i'm on the school bus and so i'm probably like age 10 or 11 and i start hearing things like sweet ballroom blitz sticks uh lorelei and 
lady, foreigner, cold as ice, and feels like the first time. And, you know, mm-hmm. Bachman turned her overdrive, Kiss shouted out loud. And so I started hearing that. And I went, wait a minute, what's that? You know, then, and probably Bachman turned her overdrive was the first record that I, not fragile, was the first record that I really got into. You know, that was their, kind of their big hit, right? Yeah, With, you yeah. ain't seen nothing yet. And a friend of mine had the vinyl, a gatefold. You know, it had the, it's it cool. The cover, you know, is this box of gears, right? And it said not fragile on it, but it was kind of a raise. I don't know what they call that, but the, you know, it was yeah, textured. I got you. Um, so I was like, this is freaking awesome. And I open it up and there's like a band, full band photo. They're on stage. But for whatever reason, I kind of trended toward Fred Turner, who's the bass player. And he had a black and white Rickenbacker. And, you know, it just, that just looked like the coolest instrument on mm. the deck. You know, yeah, it was like yeah. Gibson SG, Randy was playing a white strat i was like what is that it's only got four strings and they're like fat strings and so it's like that's awesome you know what is that i want to do that so you know that kind of changed everything and of course you know kiss comes around you know and i remember watching to see them in magazines and stuff like this you know once i saw them on the halloween paul lynn's halloween special that was the deal you know that was yeah. all of a sudden it was like now there's a real visual it's it's like I want to do that. No more being a fireman, you know? So, <laughs> and you know, look, you know, basses and guitars. I mean, that's, that's been my life ever since. So the bass was actually your first love. Usually, you know, it was something like, Oh, they didn't have a drum kit at the music store that I grew up. Yeah. In. You know, <laughs> yeah. A guy, a buddy asked me that yesterday. He said, so why the bass? I said, you know, man, you know, in hindsight, you look back and it all kind of lines up, you know, but at, you know, what, why, you know, me, some kid in the cornfield of, you know, Jackson County, Minnesota, young man, you shall be bestowed with a bass guitar shazam you know <laughs> and and like that gets on my i didn't you know it's if I, I thought the bass looked cool i thought it was the guitar i thought it sounded like the guitar so i didn't know because there's kind of like distorted guitars so i buy the bass i get a gibson ebo out of the newspaper that my mom bought for me for like 150 bucks little fender amp at a neighbor you know neighbor town uh at a music store and i plug it in and i'm just kind of like okay how do you play this thing you know one string at a time and had flat wound strings on it so it's like doom, 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 you know didn't sound like shout it out loud at all you know to me but of course i couldn't play it but you know then it just kind of that started my once you're kind of tuned into that i remember my friend greg who i'm still friends with to this day you know we you know had a conversation i heard overheard a conversation of him in the hallway out of fifth grade you know in elementary school talking about kiss or something and, and it was like a gear thing i think it was like on the back of the kiss album i always said get kiss use gibson guitars and pearl drums because they want the best you know yeah right. which we now know is an equipment endorsement right <laughs> to get gear you know so we kind of finished each other's sentences and then we became friends and played in bands and he and i moved to la together we were the you know founding founders of megadeth together you know we've had a, and we're still friends i mean you know it's funny i was thinking about it most of my friends i had some friends of course that weren't musicians but a lot of my lifelong friends are the people that i played bands with were musicians yeah. even from when i was you know just a, a kid back in minnesota about what age would you say that you can pinpoint where you started taking it real serious you know maybe had your own band and this is what i'm doing you know what right from the beginning i mean like age 11 when i got that bass man i was all in in fact before i got the bass i was all in you know oh, okay. and it's it's almost it's almost like the vision had been cast now it's just a matter of getting the mechanics to get there you know what i mean get the bass get the amp get the band do the thing you know it, it wasn't like a random oh i don't know you got a guitar well i got a bass i don't know should we get together and jam you know it was always very intentional setting it all up to you know to to, to make it happen 
I mean, I had my, I got the bass at age 11. I probably had my first band by age 12. I was starting to play with bands and, and get paid by the time I was 13. In fact, I remember, I mean, and even at age 12, I got called up some 16-year-old guys who could really play, like they could play the solo to Freebird, which to me was really knowing how to play. You know? oh, they made it. They made it. Yeah, they, they like really, they had style and they, they knew what they were doing. Like they called me up in to play with their band. And so, you know, I, I got a lot of that stuff. I was, I was usually the youngest guy in the room. You know, they'd call me up yeah. to play bass for them. That's pretty impressive for a young kid. You know, I, I wish I would have had my life figured out by the time I was 12. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it really was, it was, that, that was it. I mean, done. And then by the time, you know, then I had bands ever since I, you know, then they asked me to play a jazz band. So I did that. I mean, just kind of any opportunity to play the bass that I could, I would do, you know, and it was always with bands and other musicians. I was never like a, you know, today's version of like a bedroom YouTube shredder. I was never that guy. I wanted to be, you know, on stage playing, doing the thing. You know, that yeah, was right. always my deal. So that's, you know, that's pretty much what I've done my whole life. Still yeah. doing it now. I don't know what else to do now. So that's what I still do. <laughs> hey, you're pretty good. I say you're pretty good at it. You might as well just it's stick worked with it. Out. Yeah, it's worked out. <laughs> so some of the bands you mentioned, uh, Sticks was one of the ones that stuck out in Kiss. Uh, not many mm -hmm. of them sound like Make It Death. So how did you get no. into the, that sound? Like pretty much that's not what I'm well, which I guess is a good thing because that means we created a sound that was our own, you know, right. and that's and that's ultimately what sets you up to become, you know, an artist of any note, you know, and notoriety is, uh, you know, you hear you hear the saxophone and you know it's Kenny G, you know, you hear a, a singer sing and you know it's Adele, you know, you hear a metal band and you know it's you know whoever your your group is, you know, so I think it's it's that's what sets you apart. It's what gives you your identity. It what's it's what gives you the opportunity to actually go really do it. And we even sounded different than, you know, the other bands that were around in the genre, different right. from Slayer, Metallica, Anthrax, you know, we, we had our, we had our niche. Would you say that's intentional? Was intentional looking back or did it just happen that way? It just happened that way. It just mm -hmm. happened that way, you know, because it's always the ingredients that you put in the sauce that give it its flavor, you know? So it, Dave, playing guitar, me on bass. I mean, that always is the fundamental sound of that thing, you know, mm -hmm. always, you know, even though there've been a couple other guys who played on records, it's not the same sound, you know, it just isn't. And, you know, when you're in the room and you're, you're a needle point, you're, you're the, the two yards of thread are on that and you start weaving the fabric, you know, there, you, and you know how that's made from the beginning, that's an entirely different approach of how you walk in the room. And I say that because I've walked into sessions and records and, you know, filled in in bands. I do the best I can to kind of play the parts and, you know, as the original guy. Like when I played with Ronnie Montrose, you know, I love those first two Montrose records. And so mm -hmm. I did, you know, the best I could as a fan to replicate those parts and make you know, make Ronnie happy, make him feel like, yeah, man, my bass player is kicking ass. But you know, it's it's me. It's not it's not that guy. You know, I think it worked, but it's it's not that original sound of those four guys in the room cutting the record at that day. You know, so right. you know, and that's I think you know I think as best we can, we always want to hear that. You know, we want to hear it as close to the original as we can, especially in today's world with legacy bands touring, and that's kind of what the unless you're a brand new artist, that's kind of what the the touring business is these days it's legacy mm -hmm. artists so you grow up on a farmland and you've been pretty open about your family is pretty religious growing up how did they view things you pursuing a metal band you know it's funny i'll draw i'll draw a comparison we had the same team did our vh1 behind the music that did the creed one 
right? For instance, right? And, you know, there's always part of the VH1 behind the music is this conflict with the parents, right? And my mom was the only living parent at that time. I mean, I guess, yeah, I think at that time, at least between me and Dave. So, you know, my mom got to have the, uh, the uh, she got the call and she was actually visiting me here in Arizona at the time. So it was pretty convenient. You know, here's this, you know, sweet mother from, you know, the Midwest, you know, and uh, her son goes off to be a hellion in California and raise <laughs> hell in a band called Megadeth. So, you know, it, it shows the, the dichotomy. Now, I mean, my parents, we weren't, we weren't that religious and I didn't have this big born again, religious evangelical thing. You know, I know that's very common and mm-hmm. some people had that. I didn't, I, we were raised in the Lutheran church and it was, you know, mom sang in the choir, dad was on finance and building committees and stuff, but it wasn't like, you know, you better go to church or you're getting the belt. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> yeah. a fire and brimstone house at all. We were not like that, you know, way more chill than that you know but uh the town jackson has i don't know 14 churches and 11 of them are lutheran or something you know so it's just that's kind of what those towns are those towns are built usually on a river and they got a couple of schools and a bunch of churches and a grain elevator you know (laughs) and that's just kind of how the the thing works you know that sounds much like where i live i completely understand right Right. can you point back to a eureka moment early on to where you finally realized holy shit we can do this this is something you know for me I I felt it probably in my, you know, Greg and I were always in Greg Handovit and I were always in bands pretty much from about the time we were 13 because we're the same age in the same class, graduating class of high school in 1983. So we we're kind of always in bands since we were about like 13 years old, you know. So I took those years to really immerse myself in music as well as the bass, as well as rock and roll, you know, the stuff that I like to listen to, whether Van Halen and Judas Priest and, you know, that kind of stuff. But also, you know, playing in jazz bands, it required me. I had to still play Cape Up. I played tenor sax and you know my band teacher said he was like i know you don't like playing the sax but i just need you to keep a passing grade so i can keep you in jazz band because i really need just the bass player in jazz band and you know <laughs> that's what you'd rather do so just you know practice enough i'll go easy on you but just get just get a passing grade but you know i'll do i'll do my part to cut you slack you do your part to at least you know yeah. put forth some effort i said deal that's a that's a done deal that's fair that's fair it's a fair deal you know so but you know so i played in concert band and um you know, it's funny because a friend of mine took me to see the symphony orchestra here in phoenix a couple months ago and and it was it was cool and i understand it because i used to play in concert band you know and uh, we didn't have strings but we had uh you know it's all brass woodwind percussion and stuff and you know i always relate it as a bass player you don't the bass doesn't have to play every single note that the guitars do like like you know the flutes up front are shredding right they're like the bass, right they're yeah. throwing it down right and the farther you go back in the orchestra the bigger the instrument the lower the pitch the less notes right just because the time travel of how long it takes for a note to develop and push out and the amount of wind you know because you're blowing through a horn so i understood the dynamic so i said as a tenor sax i sat kind of right in the middle of the orchestra right so there's an alto clarinets are ahead there's an alto to my left i'm a tenor there's a baritone sax to my right you know as it went around and then there's the trumpets trombones to the baritones to the tuba and i went marching band the sousaphone you know so you know i kind of understood the layers of how compositions were were built you know so you know i think probably through the years with the megadeth music was was very similar you know i i I related a lot to it I, i think the mindset of the composing was very similar to that you know and that everybody had a moment called forward into the spotlight 
you know, when we put the band together, I remember we were talking about we're going to have lead guitar, lead drums, lead bass, lead vocal. You know, everyone will have a kind of a lead featured moment. I think that was different probably in our group than a lot of the other ones where, you know, we, we made sure that everybody had a spotlight moment. And I understood it in the probably more in jazz band, you know, because everybody would, you know, kind of go around the horn and take a solo, right? There'd be a guy, trombone player, the vibraphonist, whatever, you know, the drummer would rip a solo, the bass, you know, take a, take a, you know, they call it trading fours or trading eights where you uh, play their four bars, you know, and uh, solo or, or eight bars, you know, and you kind of go around the horn and, uh, and, you know, I, I seem to remember the band leader kind of, kind of just calling on people as sort of an exercise of, of ad-libbing. And that's one of the things you learn when you, when you learn jazz is you learn chord structure, you know, harmony. So you, you know, sort of what notes are legal within a scale and within a chord change, you know, and with jazz, the chord, the chord figures can change quickly. And I remember Marty Friedman brought that up when we were writing the cryptic writings record, he was talking about riffs, the, the, the key, sort of the key center of a riff can change within the measure, you know, and especially if you're playing like a half note, da, 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 right. Like there can be it can be just an obvious okay that's a major or a minor but sometimes you throw in you know this harmonic minor sometimes there's a diminished which we like in metal it gives it its kind of haunting spooky feel you know so <clears throat> i thought that was a cool observation with marty and i guess he was probably more aware of it because he would have to solo over top of it right and right. marty had a very innate way has a very innate way of landing on any note right wrong or otherwise and his ear is so good he can quickly kind of bend it up into a into into the sort of the legal proper pitch right and right. It, it's clever because not everybody has that they don't have that instinct in the ear to do that so marty is one, like a lot of guys but marty in particular you can tell when it's him you know he's like kenny g right you yeah, can tell yeah. when it's him playing guitar man you know it's him because mm -hmm. he's got this style and a lot of it is in these bends and first his eastern influence you know japanese oh, yeah. music yeah, and yeah. eastern stuff you know he's his, his ear goes toward that so he brings that into western heavy metal have you picked up the sax since those days not much, man. I, I have it in my storage unit. I, I I I took it out of the house in Minnesota a few years back, and I brought it out here just to have it. And and, and one of the marching uniforms. I got a marching uniform from school. I said they, they had a bunch of them. It's not my particular one. I said, man, I got to take one of these home. You know, with the hat and the whole thing, right? Because I just remember like doing. You know, especially in the summer, we'd have to do these these parades. You know, a lot of these small towns they would do their the powwow days, or the, you know, they'd have these these themed summers. You know, and and I'd go, uh, we'd march. You know, and, and, you know, of course, around that time is when we're all starting to, we've discovered drinking and other <laughs> stuff, you know, so we're, half of us are hung over having to go march in the scalding heat on a Saturday. <laughs> hey, that gets you ready for touring. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and marching, who knew? Mar and here's one thing I learned, you know, since, that's funny, I never thought about that. Marching band got us ready for touring. But marching band, the other thing it did is, you know, when you, when you march, and I guess if you're a soldier, it would be the same thing, right? You march and you can't turn your head, you know, to look. So you learn to use your peripheral vision which is almost 180 degrees right so not totally to your side but pretty much almost right so in my case is i'm blowing the sacks and, and marching or even if i'm not you know you're marching and you kind of learn where that is and i use that a lot on stage to you know sort of be playing out to the to the house to the crowd but out of the sort of peripheral vision i learned from marching band is kind of keep an eye on okay where's the singer where's the guitar player like are we are we supposed to be doing some head banging thing together <laughs> you know so <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? You learn all kinds of shit in marching band. That so applies to heavy metal. There you go. So 
when it comes to a layman like myself, what is an aspect of touring that maybe we don't think about that is just fucking terrible for a musician? Something that you guys kind of just roll your eyes at? You know, my God, there's probably a lot. <laughs> you know, there's uh, there's things, you know, I always remember tours, especially in the 90s when we were really grinding it, you know, and we still had to grind it. You know, we still were ratcheting the flag up the pole. You know what I mean? Like, just, yeah. it, you know, we're having to just we're still make a stake in our claim, you know? And um, I remember getting on tour buses, just going, oh, laying in the bunk and just going, oh my God, I can't believe this is my home for the next six months or next six weeks, you know, yeah. on the tour. And uh, my bed's flying down the highway at 70 <laughs> miles an hour every night. You know, sometimes then you think about that, you go, oh, am I going to wake up dead or not? You know, <laughs> and oh, it's, at, least, at least it's coughing size it's ready to go you know oh yeah but you know those, those things start to i don't for me i would start to think about them you know, there, there's a lot you know what i mean there's i like a lot of it's just the pacing you know you're you know you're home you know i'm up six seven in the morning go to the gym you know get my day rolling early right but you're on the road it's like there's no reason to wake up before 10 you know or for half the time 11 even noon i remember one time i went to europe and i thought you know let me think about because my chiropractor told me he said he goes you know you're at, at a certain as long that we're alive our circadian rhythms really key into the you know the sunlight the daylight hours that we see so we've had just more days of our life and it's harder to move that which is what jet lag is right when you change a radically change a time zone to go to europe or you go to asia or something right where it's like a nine 10 hour time change so one year i remember we did a tour and i just i didn't change the time zone i slept all day until like sound check got up which would be like eight in the morning at home right <laughs> i just get up go sound check and then i you know then I, I that was kind of my wake up you know then i just stay up all night eat cereal on the bus watch movies or whatever you know so that was kind of a fun experiment you know just uh yeah. hang like a vampire all summer <laughs> So when you're that level, you know, at one point or still, you know, at Megadeth, you guys are the, one of the biggest bands in the world. No matter how that traveling is going or whatever, can you just turn it on when you get up there and basically do the set, not thinking about it, like a second nature? Yeah, you, you know, you can because you want that. You kind of need to, you know what I mean? It needs mm -hmm. to be kind of a road motor skill that you're, you know, when you're practicing something, like I was just in the studio cutting a couple of tracks for uh, something this week and somebody else wrote the tunes and I, I played on it for him. And so I'm learning and I, so I sort of chart, I would sit here at home and I'll make a kind of a roadmap, maybe a few key changes, uh, you know, some notes, some notes, notation stuff, whatever, you know, enough to kind of get in there and be able to knock it out pretty quickly because time is money in the studio. So I like to go in prepared and, and I just feel better about my performance usually. So I don't know, you're kind of doing that thing, right? You're sort of, you, know, you got a map, but you're also creating as you're, as you're doing it on stage. It's not the creative time, you know, on stage, it's sort of the, that's performance time. Now you're there to perform what you've already created so then it's about really knowing knowing it's i like the, the thought that it's one thing to memorize it it's another to know it by heart yeah. right because it's memorizing is when you cram for an exam in school and then as soon as it's done you forget it all right mm -hmm. uh and sometimes recording can be like that for me you know i'll go in i'll record something and then it's done it's over i I move on by heart is when it's really in your down in your soul, you know, like I could just pick up a bass and play wake up dead without thinking about it. You know, <laughs> played it for yeah. almost 40 years, you know, you know, so those things you just don't forget. It's like riding a bike as they say. Right. So, yeah. and you can, you need to be like that on stage that you can be present for kind of the present, be present for the presentation, you know, because then now you've got lights. There's probably some cues on stage of where you're supposed to move and do things. And you don't want to be, 
freaking out, you know, like, like, oh my God, this is, is this go to this part? Like, you know, that's, you really got to know your stuff. There's a lot of moving parts on the deck. You know, you think about a drummer, you know, I've got four or five strings and I kind of control it here, right? You know, a drummer's got pedals and hi-hats and, you know, he's got like 18 pieces up there in his kit, you know, and sometimes, you know, a, a chain will break on a kick drum pedal and suddenly like the groove <laughs> is kind of wonky and the drummer's like, pedal broke, you know? So, you know, if next song we'll change the pedal out, you know? So there's things, yeah. that, drummers, drummers are probably the most uh, disadvantaged because they can't just go, hey, hold on one second. I'm going to change drum kits. Like I can right. change a guitar like it's changing a shirt you know but a drummer can't do that or if a you know a singer can go over and just grab another microphone or have a spare right there you yeah. know so you know something so you know i just like to be present for those moments and sometimes if it's a smaller club gig kind of thing it, you know be present for unexpected things that happen you know yeah like when frank frank bellow and i he said i remember one time when we first played as altitudes and attitude he went off and he was strumming some chords and he started singing bad by u2 right and he went <laughs> off in this or i still haven't found what i'm looking for or something right he went <laughs> off in this and, and it was like you know let's kind of follow that let's see where he's going you know <laughs> and it was just one of those kind of bands because we only had a few songs. And so it was like, you know, we just kind of let's follow Frank singing, you know, so let's just kind of follow him where he's going. And, and that, that was fun. That was a fun thing to do. Just kind of follow I think you're on stage and it matters because people yeah. are watching. You know, so, you know, there's those some of those moments. Ronnie Montrose is the same thing. In fact, my first gig with him was my audition, which was in Jimmy DeGrasso called me to come play on the gig because they had a couple shows they were going to do with Def Leppard. Uh, Ricky Phillips had gone over to play with Sticks, and they had another guy there for a minute who was going over to play with Pat Benatar or something. So, that, you know, they needed a guy like right away. And I said, dude, I'm in. I love those records. I, I can almost know those parts in my head. <laughs> kind of like, like you know, Ian Hill. I know Ian's parts just as a fan of Judas Priest. You know, yeah, you know yeah. air guitar him, you know? So it was fun to do. But Roddy said when we got, in Saint, it was at the State Theater in St. Petersburg, Florida, and he just said, he goes, listen here's the deal we'll play the song as it is but when it comes to the solo see you later i'm going to go off and you know and then I'll, I'll signal kind of the melody so we'll know when to come back in and then we'll kind of finish out with the last chorus and be done so those are the only instructions he gave me <laughs> and uh i think with the exception of one song i got a little lost in but for the most part that kind of i couldn't hear it was i couldn't hear exactly what he was doing but you know it wasn't a train wreck or anything but it, it was fun to just kind of like you know okay i know my parts i've learned the songs i know the parts but just kind of stand back and watch him go where he wanted man he'd do these 10 minute guitar solos you know <laughs> it was fun you just kind of mentioned it just to go on a sidebar you did play live a little bit with kk's priest right it wasn't kk's priest it was it was the it was the precursor to that um, gotcha, it, gotcha it's uh yeah yeah he um i was doing a a solo tour of Italy and Switzerland and uh, the more life with death memoir had just come out. And so, you know, we're doing some book signing. So I hit Ken and I said, Hey, I said, you got a venue up there, right? The steel mill. I said, is could I, any way I could do a book signing? And, you know, I asked him, I said, do you want to do a book signing? Cause his book had been out for a little while. So, you know, we just got on the phone and kind of talked through it and put the gig together. And I said, Dave, you know, by the way, if you want to jump up, should we jam like living after midnight or something? I mean, it, it is your place. You know what I mean? You want to come up and jam. And he hadn't really been on stage yet. And he, and then he did, uh, Ross, the boss had him come out of bloodstock and he played, uh, and that was kind of the first time yeah, he played I since remember being, that. being out of priest. Right. Yeah. 
And, you know, he, uh, as he, as he put it, he tasted blood for the first time in a few years and it felt good, you know, and he got the appetite back. So I think me coming up there, because you know, we're friends and, you know, and, and, you know, he trusts me, you know, and, and, and it's, I'm, I'm not going to do anything to lead him astray. And he, he's my friend, but he's also, you know, he's my hero too, you know, yeah. and uh cover of Unleashed and East says it all. So, you know, as we, as we just started talking and then my friend says, dude, why don't we get Ripper to sing? I said, that's cool. And then we got on the phone, me and Ken and Ripper and uh, Ripper goes, dude, why don't we get Les Banks? I said, no way. I said, Les Banks, is, is he still playing? And he goes, oh yeah, he's got like a band. He gigs around. I said, come on. It's like, what the hell? Just <laughs> play Unleashed in the East and call it a day. You know what I mean? It's like, so that's, that's how it started. And it, so it went from just a, can I play at your venue to, you know, a full blown thing. And so my band played and then uh, I did double duty that night. I did, I did a whole show with my band, changed my t-shirt and then we went right out and did, you know, the set with Ken and it was, yeah, it was awesome. Man. Phone was ringing everywhere as it still does for us to do something like that again, you know? So definitely but he, should. You know, yeah, no, for sure. And he, and he, you know, I could tell he wanted to, to, he, you know, he wanted to be creative again. He wanted to write new songs and, you know, have his own songs and hence, you know, KK's Priest. So that's happened as a result of that for sure. But it happened after that. Now, I know there's multiple ways to skin a cat. So when I ask yeah. you this um, songwriting process, is there mm -hmm. one that comes to you more so than the others? Does it usually start with a baseline, maybe a riff? some lyrics how's that work you know you? it could be any any and all and it depends on the setting you know obviously you know megadeth dave started most of the ideas you know sometimes other guys would bring stuff in i'd bring things in whatever uh, or you'd sort of add to something or you'd kind of be invited to write something other settings it's uh say metal allegiance for instance me or alex skolnick would start on a riff and then Portnoy get up. If Portnoy got excited. We knew we we're onto something. Oh, dude, that's awesome. You give me a kidney and start playing. And then, and then Mike was the arranger, you know, we'd come up with these riffs and he'd go take that part. And he had actually had a, like a whiteboard. You'd like start writing the, the charts out, you know, kind of the, the arrangement of the song, you know, like the same with Mark Mingy, you know, he'd come, he'd bring a, a riff in or something, you know, everybody has their flavor. So, you know, that's how that was written. You know, the, the lucid stuff started with Drew and Mike. They were, collaborating on stuff i think a lot of kind of drew's ideas and mike is a great producer so he would help develop things and say let's go here with it let's go there with it and i've written some other things now with mike i've spent some time out there you know working on a couple of other things and mike's mike heller is a, he's fantastic with okay now we've heard this and this and this i want to hear it go here you know so he's really good at sort of having a, a vision of where it should go you know like we've already heard that let's do let's go somewhere else we haven't been so far and you know and then sometimes i'll sit there and write the write that part you know so it, you know so they're they're all different you know and then other ones like when i played with max cavalera he would walk in with these little four track demos from his house that pretty much sounded like a soulfly record right he played you know the guitar he'd sing he had some little drum machine and then we just sort of recreated that it's his band it's his songs it's his sound and i would always ask him because that was kind of with the first one of the first records that i did away from megadeth after 20 years you know i'd gotten used to that working environment for you know two decades so playing with max i'd be like so should i do some of this or should i do some of that and he'd be like man whatever you want man whatever you want you're david ellison you do whatever you want you know and, and i'm like all right you know so i could basically almost play rag i think one part is almost playing like a reggae line or something or some breakdown that happened you know he loved it he goes oh man that sounds sounds great man keep going you know so 
I just, all right, if Max is smiling, I'm good, you know? Yeah, you know, you just, you, you read the room. I think that's that's a big part of it is just kind of reading the room, you know? Is everybody going, yeah, it sounds good? Or are they <laughs> looking at you like, dude, what are you doing? You know, that's a read the room, you know? I know you do a lot of convention appearances. Just a quick <laughs> just a quick story. So uh, my wife and I went to Days of the Dead one year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not one of those guys that likes to bother people when they're not at their table. So we're at the sandwich shop in the Sheraton, looking at my phone, look at the guy in front of me, and I, you know, glance up again. My wife can see me go pale. She's like, what is wrong with you? Well, the guy in front of us is David Ellison. Now, be quiet. Don't don't say anything. <laughs> don't talk to him. <laughs> but How did you going to say they thought it was Jason from Friday the 13th? It no, it was nice. you. It was you. Oh, it was me. All right. You didn't even have a mask on. No. I was, like, <laughs> I was just shishing her. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, you know, it's funny with these conventions because they used to be the thing where the has-been wrestlers win. You know what I mean? I remember the first time I got called to do it and I go, I said, isn't that kind of like the end of the road, the road? Like, you know, like playing in Vegas. It's where you went when when you had nowhere else to go. You know, now everybody's doing residencies. And it's like the hip cool town. I think these conventions have turned into the same thing. You know, I um, I think the first one I did was the Houston Comic Con. It was big. I mean, Guar was there. Uh, I remember talking to Henry Winkler in the lobby of the hotel. You know, to me, he's Fonzie, right? And, yeah, hey. and I heard he just had a granddaughter was born. So we started talking about kids and oh my God, he was just, oh my God, you have grandkids. Oh my God, kids are the best. And you know, I'm sitting here talking to the Fonz, you know, <laughs> and he's just the sweetest guy. It was just so cool. As most people are, you know, they're, you know, just really great. And I remember Jeremy Renner was there. Some new Marvel movie had come out. So I went over to Jeremy. I gave him a copy of my book and he was totally cool. He's total metalhead. And I remember getting introduced to Stan Lee. I didn't know who Stan Lee was. I'm, I'm not like, I wasn't a big Marvel guy, right? I was more yeah, of a yeah. DC comic guy so my agent goes dude you need to meet Stanley I said who's Stanley dude he created all this stuff I'm sitting talking to him you know nice guy right he's hanging out there's a picture of us I was like who was that again like that's Stan Lee I said okay you know and then I then I learned who Stan Lee was you know it's like I'm I'm a a freaking rock and roll musician I wasn't a big huge comic book guy other than the Marvel comic book that Kiss did where they put some of their blood in it that was my main thing with Marvel you know so but yeah Stan was wonderful it's like it's like hanging out with your dad just hanging out catering just in her bullshit and enough on so in your entire song catalog David Megadeth or not for you what is the most difficult song to play is there a song that makes you roll your eyes you know there's songs I mean like they're all hard if you play them right (laughs) is this the (laughs) truth you know because you know they're they're fast there's a lot of sort of muscular intensity you know what i mean you can't you, you can't just sort of phone it in you know what i mean you really gotta you know warm up and you got you kind of got to be warmed up and have a lot of your endurance in place you know you can't have just been on vacation and pick your bass up and rip through the tunes you know it, it, it requires dexterity and everything so i mean you know holy wars can be difficult to play but you know that's why by when we had it at the end of the set it was easier to play because you're warmed up for an hour and a half you know it's a lot easier when we used to come out and start with it back in the 90s like with the rusty beast or something. I think we started with it at the time and it was like, oh my God, this is a freaking killer to come out of the gate with this one. Uh, you're kind of waiting for the little break where Marty does the flamenco thing. She go shake it off, you know? Because, <laughs> you know, if you tense up, you get the Popeye arm, you know? You get like, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. That. So, you know, you know, the, uh, the funny thing is something like My Last Words, which has that really kind of ripping pentatonic do 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 That actually is not that hard to play because it's just a, it's a pattern, you know? It's just a, it's a pentatonic pattern kind of in the box there you know and if you kind of just you just kind of get in the moment it's secular you know so sometimes things you think would be harder aren't and 
some of the more noty complexities would be, you know, tornado, you know, because of the down picking on tornado could be a thing. And it, and it, 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 it changes if you, if you butterfly it versus, and I, and I would change it sometimes depending on who the drummer was. Sean Drover played in the band. He played very much behind the beat like Chuck Beeler. He had a really relaxed feel, very comfortable to play with Sean actually. And like when, you know, Nick was in the band, he would always push everything, you know, everything was all, everything was always at the front edge of the beat. So you're like hanging on for dear life. Like, dude, <laughs> come on, pull it back a little bit, dude. You know, so, <laughs> you know, just sometimes the drummer made all the difference. Right. And uh, just to wind it down here, David, that I'm not going to keep you all evening. Say I'm your base student, day one, lesson one. What's good for someone to learn? A good lesson to take away from the first lesson. So, okay. So if you have not played before a lot of it is just going to be like hey get comfortable with your bass right and hopefully you went and bought your bass because it looked cool to you and it's comfortable and it's something you want to play you know as shallow as that sounds it's huge right i mean who wants to drive a car that you know that you're embarrassed to drive right so you know you get an instrument it's comfortable and it just kind of feels good in your body right and you want to play it and that's why i leave instruments out i can't play them if they're in the case in the closet so i leave them out <laughs> because I'll, I'll walk in one day and just pick it up and start playing and some days there's music some days there isn't and if there is i play and if not I don't stress. I'd put it down and do something else, you know? So I think, you know, some of those kind of things, you know, leave your base out, leave it available. It becomes a work tool, not a piece of furniture. And I think I'll, I, I, and I don't, I don't teach very much. I mean, I've done a few lessons and things, you know, but I, I guess, I guess kind of teach the way things that I know that I've, either had success with or struggled with in my own playing so it's kind of like i want to play something for me and then kind of right away look at you know how you're holding the bass how you how you're picking it or fingering it or playing it because how you start is how you're those are habits you're going to have for the rest of your of your playing career or season of your playing right so you know learn how to play it properly just for the degree that, that first of all you're comfortable you're not going to hurt your body you know your back and your stuff i mean a bass is a longer instrument so you know i've got i've got just chronic shoulder issues, <laughs> mostly from when I played these modulus bases back in the nineties, because they were like this inch longer and the way they hung. In fact, I see this, this, we played train of consequences on the David Letterman show. And sometimes I'll see it. And I've, I've always looked, I'm kind of like standing like a duck just because the way I'm holding the base, right. Is the way I kind of negotiated around my body, right. That, that it was that particular base. It wasn't all the modulus. So, so I've had a ton of them over the years and, and, but it was that particular one because they're handmade and they all handmade instruments. Everyone is different. You know, like my production yeah. Jackson's, I pull them out of the box. They are consistent as can be, man. I, it's it. You almost can't tell the difference, but so those are some things like that. And if you've been playing for a while, you know, I get like, you know, you get like these shreddy guys right and it's sort of like every note is a word right and you're saying something with the with the word with the note right so think about what you're saying and think about how you're saying it and do you really need all those words are you just the <laughs> babbling idiot or is it better to pull back and go hmm, yeah maybe not today you know <laughs> you know what i mean like like think about every note as a as a as a word and, and you're right. stating and you're saying something right so don't you know, it's like when people sing the national anthem, it's like, can save your bullshit, man. Just sing the song, right? We're not here to, you know, for, it's like they're, everyone's audition. It's like, why? You're already singing the national anthem. There's been thousands of people to do it. You cannot have your own rendition. <laughs> just, I, I always, I always think, because I go to Suns games, you know, sporting events, and you see the, the ball players in there. They look like they're praying. They're probably going, oh, 
another one, an, another someone showing off singing the anthem. Right? I can almost imagine in their head, right? Yeah, yeah. Where are we today? Over in Boston. Oh, gosh, here's another one having to show <laughs> off singing the national anthem. You know, because you never know what's really going on, right? Right, right. In someone's mind. So, you know, it's kind of like, okay, you just played me 100 notes. For every 10 notes you just played, throw nine of them away, right? <laughs> so, so pick note one, you know, 11, 21, you know, like just pick 10 out of the hundred, take those 10 notes. Now tell me a story with those 10 notes, you know, rather than all the other ones you used. Quality and just, quantity. Yeah. And just your phrasing, the electric guitar in particular is, is such a unique instrument because you can bend the notes. You know, you can't bend the notes on a saxophone. You can't bend the notes on a, on a drum. You know, you can't bend the notes on a piano and even a bass, you kind of can, you know, fretless, you can move around. That's why the fretless is so expressive. But, you know, the electric guitar in particular, you know, a big part of the style of lead guitar playing is in the bending, right? So it's like you can, you know, move a note and it's texture and stuff. So, you know, those are the kind of things that you've been playing for a while is do you really need to play all those notes. And again, think about where you sit in the orchestra. You're the yeah. bass, you're toward the back right let the you know let the piccolo shred right that's the lead guitar player you know you're in the back longer string longer note it takes a while for it to develop so you know the thing with a bass every time you hit that string you're stopping the note before it from really developing and having a nice you know warmth to it so every time you hit it it's like digga, 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 digga. it's you know and it, that's there's a time for that especially compositionally there might be a time for it but if you're always hitting the string you're essentially stopping the whole purpose of why the bass exists you know is to create bass they call it a bass not a treble <laughs> well said david last question here what is the best advice you've received throughout your career my dad would he had a he'd always say because he had no musical talent or ear and you know he was he was a businessman right he thought with the other side of his brain right and he was always you know he always saw i think you know you could see musicians who were artists performers and the really great ones you know they really just they were connected to their audience right and i remember he always used to tell me go you remember you're not great until someone else says you are in other words it's your job to make them it's their night, not yours. You know, you're going to work, you know, you're performing, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's their nights to, you know, play the songs they want to hear, do the things they want to see. Like they paid the ticket, give them what they want. And I think that holds true forever, you know, is, uh, you know, give the people what they want. Well said. Just to end, what's in on the horizon for you? What's in the pipeline? So we've got Lucid stuff. Uh, we've got some videos coming up. We've got our tour dates coming up here in May. And I have a handful of other things I can't yet talk about because uh, okay. <laughs> they're uh, coming up. Yeah, you know, because, you know, it's interesting. It, it's great because I've got a lot of content in the pipeline and I've just kind of used this last season of my life to just create. And, you know, COVID helped with that, you know, to get some things in the pipeline. And, and I'd always sure. rather talk about what I'm doing or have done rather than, what i'm gonna do you know yeah um Understood. so so for now it's it's you know the lucid stuff of course uh the nick menza documentary that we're working on as well as the soundtrack that's that goes with that that's that's been a lot of fun that's really cool we've got uh, nick's got some you know various drum tracks and things that he's had in the vault so we're composing some songs to those tracks which is really cool it's like writing songs with nick awesome yeah well, david like i said it's been a pleasure man i'm looking forward yeah, to seeing it. what you got coming up and you have a great rest cool. of your day thank you buddy see ya welcome to the night 
You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.